Much ado about the AQ episode 3, wherein we become a true crime podcast. Hello, welcome to episode 3, which I am tentatively entitling Out of Our Deptford. <laughs> um, we're going to be talking about Marlowe today, so always an exciting one. This is Much Ado About the AQ, your local friendly authorship question podcast, which is open to everyone. Uh, we start with some apologies and addendi from the previous episode. Dr. Taylor missed something he was devastated about immediately after recording the last <coughs> one, and we are far too lazy to go back and edit it, so uh, it's being added on to this one. Yes, uh, sorry about this. Um, also, we'd hit the 30-minute mark, and it just seemed that yeah. it, it was just too much for one instalment. Um, but just to kind of... your minds. Yeah, exactly. Get, get ready to pop your monocles again. Um, consider this a tie-in to the last thing. It dovetails nicely. Um, just, yeah, so, some bonus kind of information about the first folio shenanigans. Uh, if you remember last, last episode, we were talking about dodgy doublets and Apollo symbolism... Uh, bizarre, poetic, uh, you know, kind of uh, dedications and cryptic messages and so forth. Um, the, the, there's something actually really factually important about the first folio, however, that I, I failed to mention. And it is simply as follows. Uh, the first folio, 1623, is dedicated to two chaps. And they were William Herbert, 3rd Earl of Pembroke, and Philip Herbert, 4th Earl of Pembroke and 1st Earl of Montgomery. And I mention these guys, obviously, because they were the dedicatees of the first folio, um, but also because William Herbert was arranged, uh, sorry, was, was, was meant to marry Bridget de Vere in 1597, and Philip Herbert did marry Lady Susan de Vere. Um, and, and in addition to that, if you look at Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucrece, you'll see that they were dedicated to another earl, uh, Henry Risley, 3rd Earl of Southampton, and he also was um, meant to marry uh, Elizabeth de Vere, um, the daughter of Oxford and Anne Cecil, and that, that marriage fell through in 1594. They were all kind of dynastic arranged marriages. But I'd just like to point out the fact that the first folio of Shakespeare, plus the poems Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucrece, were all dedicated to earls, therefore members of the aristocracy, all known to the Earl of Oxford, and all who either were intended to marry uh, a De Vere girl who, who actually did marry into the De Vere clan. I'll, I'll leave that one there. Ah, interesting. So um, and now the introductions. My name's Joe Payne. Uh, I am expert to layman and layman to experts uh, on the AQ. I am an English teacher and I am, if nothing else, your host. And I'm joined as ever by Dr Taylor. Hello, greetings. Thanks for having me back. You're the co-host. It would be weird if I didn't. I'd be sitting there talking to myself. Well, I'd just like to thank you, because I, I was brought up proper, you know? In I should north. behave myself in public. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, yeah, um, shall we discuss what we're reading before we jump yes, into indeed. the Marlowe? What have you been reading this week? Well, I thought it would be pertinent to mention two titles this week, given that the theme is the Marlovian theme. Um, one is the classic, um, The Murder of the Man Who Was Shakespeare by Calvin Hoffman. Um, this is the book, if you like, that either kick-started or started the, uh, the, the Marlowe theory for the, um, the authorship question. Um, and then the, 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 the chap I mentioned in the last podcast, Dr. Peter Hodges, uh, who's essentially been kind of dubbed uh, by somebody on a website somewhere, anyway, uh, like the, the latest Calvin Hoffman. He's kind of like a, a reincarnation of Hoffman, if you like. 
um, his excellent book, Marlowe's Complaint. I won't go into what it's about, but uh, it's a fantastic addition to uh, Hoffman. Uh, again, it's text-based with lots of biographical detail included, and it makes a very strong case for Marlowe as Shakespeare. Okay, fantastic. I've been uh, going back to almost the beginnings of the AQ and reading J. Thomas Looney's Shakespeare Identified. It's a fantastic tome. Um, well, very well researched, but he was always kind of cursed in the beginning with a name like Looney. Mm. And uh, it's well worth a read because of the fantastic, almost Victorian-style prose that goes on these wonderful tangents and, and never quite manages to stay focused for very long. But it's, it's very much worth a read. It's got some fascinating stuff in there. Um, and, and started the whole thing. So uh, an excellent text. Okay, so today, Christopher Marlowe, local boy. We're here in Canterbury at the moment. Um, he was born only a couple of miles from where we're sitting. Uh, and um, he's one of the key figures in the authorship question controversy. Yes, he is. Um, he was born in 1564 uh, on the 26th of February uh, here in Canterbury. So that's the same year that Shakespeare was born in Stratford. Um, he was um, born into a, a very kind of um, poor family. Um, his father, John, was a, a cobbler, or he repaired shoes. So that's similar to the, you know, um, Shakespeare's father as a Glover meme uh, that, that Stratfordians like to push, uh, the idea of rags to riches and so on. Um, Marlowe's mum, Catherine, um, you know, just kind of a generic Canterbury housewife, if there is such a thing, if you want an indie band. <laughs> if you want an indie band title, call yourself a generic Canterbury housewife. I'm taking that, that's now my band. You'll get three bookings in Ramsgate with that. Um, and what we know of Marlowe is that he was a precocious talent, a very, very clever boy indeed. Uh, so before he was 15, he won a scholarship to the King's School here in Canterbury, which I think is the oldest school in England. One of the oldest. Still going, still going. Still there. King's. Um, there is a Marlowe house at the school. They obviously celebrate their link to one of their famous alumni. Um, his uh, Marlowe scholarship to the school originated with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Matthew Parker, who uh, provided money to teach boys with minds apt for learning and with an eye to a career in the church. And apparently this is the guy who took such a close interest in his wards as he promoted them into the priesthood uh, that he and the sobriquet Nosy Parker, that's Dr. Matthew Parker. Uh, yeah, Marlowe enrolls at King's, 14th of January, 1579, and he goes from there up to Corpus Christi, Cambridge, and was writing plays at the university that were later staged in London, earning him, you know, a great deal of fame, uh, much, much before um, the Shakespeare name was being used from about the late 1580s, 1593 onwards. So yeah, Marlowe went from rags to riches, he went from humble beginnings to uh, the stage and became a household name. Yeah, I mean, you can still see his plays being performed today. Dr. Faustus is a perennial favourite, Tamburlaine, uh, among others, and he's, you know, a, a hugely successful man. But he wasn't just a playwright, was he? There was more to him than that. Yeah, so when I'm teaching uh, students uh, for the, on the AQ module um, here at this school, um, I often um, tell them about Marlowe's interesting kind of uh, experience at Cambridge uh, by asking them how likely would it be if you went to a freshers' fair at university that the British spy service, aka MI5, would be recruiting. And they look at me and say, well, that's completely preposterous. But uh, when I enrolled at Leeds, um, my alma mater, um, th 30 years ago, 
um, MI5 were there. They were recruiting. So what, what we think uh, was going on with Marlowe is by the time he gets to Corpus Christi, um, to read Divinity, I think. Yes. Yeah, which is a bit odd because he was later accused by one of his enemies of being an atheist. And we'll, sure we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. Yeah, yeah Dr. Faustus, the plate, suggests otherwise. Um, but at some point, he seems to have been recruited into Sir Francis Walsingham's, um, well, we call it a spy network, whatever we're going to call it. Um, Elizabethan spies were called intelligences, and he had a community of intelligences whose job it was to protect uh, the realm, the queen, uh, from, you know, enemies foreign and domestic, but more often than not, Catholics. Um, and, uh, yeah, Marlowe was absent from Cambridge for a long, long stretch. Uh, he was more often out of Cambridge than in, and this and other things that I can elaborate on gives us to understand that he was spying for the Queen abroad. Yeah, for obvious reasons, there's not a huge number of records of the time of his spying activities, um, as there wouldn't be for many spies still active today. But um, it's almost a matter of public knowledge that he was doing some underhanded work for the Queen. Yeah, I mean, Spying 101, it's a bit like the Monty Python uh, sketch, How Not To Be Seen. Yeah. I mean, you don't go around having, you don't have a badge, do you? you? Say, hi, can I help you? I'm a spy. Yeah, you don't introduce yourself with your surname, then your forename, then your surname again, and I'll order the same drink everywhere you go. It's just strange if you do this. Um, so, yeah, what, what goes on is in 1584, uh, Marlowe graduates BA, um, so he gets his, his first degree. Um, and by June 1587, he was scheduled to receive his MA. Now, that didn't happen. As Hoffman says, the university heads flatly denied Marlowe his degree. Um, so the question at that, at that moment and, and, and since has been, well, why didn't he get this MA if he'd technically earned it? Um, and it's because he'd taken unauthorised leave from Cambridge. Now, the story would end there, and it would be not very interesting, were it not for the fact that... Um, when Marlowe was denied his master's degree, and I quote from Hoffman, the Privy Council dispatched a governmental order to the university officials. And we actually have that documentation. We have the letter sent by the Privy Council, you know, Elizabeth's most uh, trusted group of, of councillors, to Cambridge, to Corpus Christi. And the key section, if you don't mind me reading it, is as follows. <coughs> Serious voice. Whereas it was reported that Christopher Marlowe was determined to have gone beyond the seas to Reims and there remain, their lordships thought good to certify that he behaved himself orderly and discreetly, whereby he had done Her Majesty good service and deserved to be rewarded for his faithful dealing. And after the uh, Privy Council letter landed at Cambridge, Marlowe got his MA. So interestingly, he'd been away for some time doing who knows what, but doing good service to a man. He was denied his MA, presumably for spending a lot of time away and not actually doing a lot of the course. And then mysteriously gets it after a letter comes through from the Privy Council. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very, very suggestive. <coughs> it seems to point in only one direction. Um, and, and Reims, as I think you pronounce it in French, but Reims, if you're English, uh, had a Catholic seminary, so there was no way he was just out there for a day trip. Uh, this was a highly volatile uh, situation with Elizabeth facing constant threats like the Babington plot uh, and the Armada, you know, 1587 and whatnot, uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, you know, all, all the intrigue uh, by the Vatican and, and Philip of Spain. 
you know, to be a Catholic in, in England was literally a death sentence, but to go and spy on, on Catholics would have required a great deal of fortitude and um, determination as well. So it seems to me, and this is what Calvin Hoffman concludes, that somebody like Thomas Walsingham, who was, I think, the nephew of Francis Walsingham, fellow Cambridge guy, he recruits Marlowe. Marlowe ends up working for Sir Francis Walsingham. He goes off to France to spy on the Catholics. Um, Cambridge say, right, you've been away too long. Well, they didn't know what he was doing. Well, there's another suggestive detail. And the Privy Council says, well, you know, he's been to this major centre of Catholic conspiracy on the continent. Give him the MA. It's, it's like going for a job interview today, and when they ask about the gap in your CV, you just say, sorry, I've signed an NDA. Yeah, I can't um, talk about that. Yeah, sorry, not allowed to. Official Secrets Act. <laughs> um, but essentially, that's what happened to him. And then he, I mean, he came back to England. He lived his life for a little while, but he met what could be called an untimely end. Yeah, so the, the run-up to his death is, is very, very important because of what was going on in London and in Marlowe's private life. Um, Hoffman alleges, I think convincingly, that Marlowe and Walsingham were lovers. That's Sir Thomas Walsingham and, and Marlowe. Um, Walsingham was married with children, but as we know from um, the, the, you know, these kind of relationships, um, that, that is not an impediment in any way, and although it would have been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would have been very much a legal impediment, but it's, it's been in very much in the news exactly. over the last few weeks. It has made the news. It is an entirely relevant thing. These kind of things happen. But the stakes were even higher then, so hence the added secrecy. But, um, yeah, in the run-up to his death, um, all, all kinds of uh, very, very interesting things were going on. For a start, Marlowe had been associated whilst in London with Sir Walter Raleigh's School of Night, where um, open discussion fueled by alcohol and tobacco brilliant, often led to open criticism of holy writ, God's existence, and other dangerous ideas, Hoffman writes. So Marlowe's mixing with the wrong kind of guy. Um, he's already been a spy. He's produced plays like Tamburlaine, which put on the stage the world's first kind of Muslim tragic hero. I mean, he was taking all kinds of chances. Uh, they're fantastic plays. Tamburlaine was so exciting. There was a Tamburlaine part two, obviously. Um, so um, he'd, he'd also been... Uh, caught up, this is Marlowe in London, in, in you know, various acts of uh, violence and so on. Uh, in 1589, he had a fight or a duel with somebody called William Bradley in Hog Lane, London. Uh, daggers were drawn, Marlowe's going at it. Thomas Watson arrives, tries to defend Marlowe, so it's turning into Romeo and Juliet as we speak. Uh, Watson and Bradley fight, Watson runs Bradley through, Bradley dies, Marlowe and Watson are arrested, go to Newgate Prison for 12 days. So he's a bad lad. Mm. Um, a whole 12 days for killing someone in the street. I mean, you know... It's nothing changes. Nothing exactly, you know, he had connections. Been to Cambridge, got Obviously. connections, nothing yeah, That's what it's all about, posh boy. Um, <laughs> and, and so all these things accumulate. So the, the Privy Council started to take, let's say, an interest in Marlowe. And they started to pull people in for information about him, which seems odd given that they could have just got him in. But anyway, so two, two names emerge. One is Richard Baines, author of the famous Baines Notes. And one's a guy called Thomas Kidd, who was a playwright, wrote The Spanish Tragedy. Um, and these two guys between them, bearing in mind they're enemies of, uh, Baines did not like Marlowe. Um, and, and, and Kidd, I think, was put on the rack to extract information. So I wouldn't call these credible witnesses or accounts. But these guys basically accused Marlowe of homosexuality and atheism. And those were capital offences. Um, so in the Baines note, for example, uh, Baines says that Marlowe said... 
they, uh, all they that love not tobacco and boys were fools. I mean, Marlowe didn't get a chance to defend himself. So these accusations were, were, were deadly. Um, he, he was in a fix. He was accused of spreading atheism as well, wasn't he? Of, of producing yeah. pamphlets. Disseminating unbelief. And let's not forget that Percy Bysshe Shelley, you know, the romantic poet himself, he was sent down from Oxford for writing a pamphlet called The Necessity of Atheism, and that was in the 1820s. Mm. Uh, and, and, and historically, at Oxford and Cambridge, to lecture there until very recently, you had to be a vicar, you had to be a member of the Church of England, you had to be an ordained clergy person. Mm. A big deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, religion always had a huge place in British society. I mean, obviously, it's, it's dying out now, but mm-hmm. certainly at the time, to be an outspoken atheist was to write your own death sentence. Mm. Uh, very brave if that was the way you wanted to do things, but uh, Marlowe, at least according to these accounts, was was happy to do that, although I'm not entirely convinced by them. No. Um, so, so concerned was Marlowe, as, as we kind of read the situation, that he actually went to Sir Thomas Walsingham's pad at Scadbury Park in Kent, uh, which is now in ruins, but there are very, very kind of attractive ruins that you can go and look at. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the night before he was killed, he, he's with Sir Thomas Walsingham in, in Kent and uh, potentially hiding out. But I, I and people in, in the AQ community, uh, Hoffman and uh, Dr. Hodges as well, believe that what they were doing there was hatching a plot to get Marlowe off the hook. And that brings us to the 30th of May, which is the day Marlowe is killed. You couldn't see the air quotes there, but the, the, trust me, they were there. Air quotes. So 1593. Yeah, and, and Marlowe's apparent death in, in Deptford in London. Yeah, there, there, are, there are all kinds of things wrong and, and, and kind of misunderstood about what goes on. The official uh, accounts, and this is the kind of thing you get in the Encyclopedia Britannica or Wikipedia, so pinches of salt, is that there was a tavern brawl in Deptford, Marlowe was stabbed in the eye, that was it. You know, he'd written seven plays, he was kind of a scandalous figure, he was a homosexual atheist or an atheist homosexual. And that was it, you know, he, he'd been removed from the historical record. Um, <coughs> everything could then get back to normal. But Our argument over who was going to pay the bill officially, wasn't it? Yeah, um, except most of that is tosh. First of all, he wasn't in a tavern, he was in a house. And the house was owned by one called Eleanor, Eleanor Bull. Um, and, and she was kind of a local Deptford widow. Now, her house was known to be a safe house for spies. So that's the first thing that should make you kind of arch your eyebrow and or pop a monocle. Um, Moreover, um, she was related to one of Queen Elizabeth's ladies-in-waiting. Now, this will become pertinent because the Queen is directly, well, the Queen is indirectly involved in Marlowe's assassination, as I will reveal in what follows. Um, But basically, um, the claim that he was in a tavern brawl is like a confection of, of, you know, history and and whatnot since. Thomas Beard in 1597, in his Theatre of God's Judgments, kind of light-hearted title, he alleged that Marlowe got into a fight in London streets, during which uh, he stabbed his own dagger into his head. So 16th century, uh, non-eyewitnesses, but accounts, are saying there's no bar room, there's no tavern brawl, and there's no deaths at the hand of another man. Uh, there were other contemporary reports that said Marlowe had died of the plague, uh, Francis Mears in Wit's Treasury, 1598, has Marlowe killed by a jealous gay lover, stabbed to death by a certain bawdy-serving man, a rival in his lewd love. 
and uh, in 1600, William Vaughan in Golden Grove said that Marlowe was killed in Deptford, stabbed into the eye by an enraged Ingram in such sort that his brains coming out at the dagger's point, he shortly after died. Um, well, Vaughan was writing seven years after the event, wasn't an eyewitness, and therefore there was always doubt about how Marlowe died. Was it the plague? Was he stabbed? Did he just fall over? Yeah, and even the, the autopsy report, such as it is, is leave plenty of room for, for doubt and by whom it was conducted has issues as well. Mm. So it's not until 1925 that a guy called Leslie Hodson discovers the original coroner's inquest report into Marlowe's death. Okay, so we have to wait until the early 20th century to get any concrete evidence that would be acceptable in, I don't know, a court of law about uh, Marlowe's death. Um, and this places, this, this coroner's inquest report, places Marlowe in the house of a certain Eleanor Bull with three guys, Ingram Freiser, Nicholas Skiers, and Robert Poley. Uh, and, and, and according to this coroner's report, Freiser gave Marlowe a mortal wound over his right eye of the depth of two inches and the width of one inch. Um, and, and there has been speculation that I wouldn't actually kill you. Now, I don't know, I haven't been stabbed in the eye recently, but I don't know. So my experience of being stabbed in the eye is fairly limited, admittedly, but to yep. be stabbed above the eye, and, and these sorts of reports were fairly specific, to, mm. to be honest. They, were, they would have specified a difference between being stabbed above and in the eye. Mm. Uh, a penetration of the eye socket was different from being stabbed above the eye. It's hugely mm. unlikely that a dagger being thrust especially from close range, would be able to penetrate the skull in any meaningful way. Mm. So it would bleed a lot, <clears throat> certainly leave a mark, but there's no way that you could pe penetrate and, and reach someone's brain with a dagger in mm. that kind of range. And yet, obviously, this is the official coroner's inquest report, so <clears throat> we, we have to give it credence, but it really, really matters who the coroner was, and that's where Elizabeth I comes in. But just a little bit of extra context here. Um, bearing in mind, Freiser has killed Marlowe. Freiser is later pardoned by the Queen. Okay? So Elizabeth I, Gloriana, good Queen Bess, the Virgin Queen, LOL, she pardons a common skullduggerous knave of the name of Ingram Freiser, who was known to be, you know, a bother boy, a tough guy, um, and, and extremely violent. So... What the hell was going on with Skiers, Poli, and Freiser? Who were these guys? And why is the guy who's alleged to have killed Marlowe not just let off the hook by some local magistrate, but pardoned by the Queen, who previously has interceded on, on, on Marlowe's behalf, let's not forget? Well, they all work for Thomas Walsingham. Okay, so please just chew that over and think carefully. Um, Skiers, Poli, and Freiser all work for Sir Thomas Walsingham, Marlowe's lover, definitely friend. Um, whose uncle ran the spy network that Marlowe worked for. So it makes you wonder, doesn't it, if what was going on in Deptford wasn't less an assassination and more what we'd now call uh, a witness relocation program beginning. And I, th I, I genuinely think that that is what happened. Um, Marlowe's burial is, is subject to a couple of questions as well, isn't it? Um, the grave is unmarked. If you go to Deptford to this day, there is a plaque, there is a kind of a monument... I think erected by the uh, Marlowe Society of Glorious Heritage and, 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 and whatnot. But um, there, there is no known grave. Um, also, 
No one saw the body prior to burial, and the only person present, if I'm right, and obviously Dr. Hodges will probably be leaping in on the chat and tell me I'm wrong, but I'm fairly certain that when Marlo, Marlowe's air, air things, when his body was committed to the grave, um, the only people there were the priests and Sir Thomas Walsingham, but Walsingham was there. Uh, and I think he was there to make sure a body was buried. Um, but the really important thing is, is to do with this coroner, okay? So, if you were um, guilty of a crime and you committed that crime within 12 miles of the royal court, um, then you were technically within what they call the royal verge, V-E-R-G-E, okay? So, um, Queen Elizabeth was in uh, either Kew or Greenwich when Marlowe was killed. And that, that meant, therefore, that Deptford was, was within the Royal Verge. So what that actually meant is that the person who conducted the inquest into Marlowe's death was the Queen's own coroner. The Queen, who previously has, uh, you know, kind of made sure Marlowe gets his MA, who would later pardon Fraser. So everything here reeks of um, witness relocation, um, a kind of a pseudo-assassination, and, and then Hoffman, to link this to the AQ, basically says, as a result of all these shenanigans with unmarked graves and, you know, dodgy coroners, Marlowe survives Deptford, gets on a boat at Dover, and goes to Italy to write the plays. That's a very contentious second point, but there is some evidence for that. But, um, yeah, we'll, we'll bring it back to being an, an AQ podcast rather than a did Marlowe die where he's supposed to have done real crime podcast uh, mm. right now, in fact. So, yeah, the, the suggestion is that Marlowe fled Britain under a cloud of homosexual atheism, mm. um, fled to Italy, and there were only a few city-states in Italy that kind of would have accepted him at the time, almost definitely. Yeah, now I'd hate to give a shameless plug for things what I write and put on Amazon, <clears throat> but if you do go to Amazon Books and type in the name Kit Marley... Um, I, I have produced some publications there, pretending to be a dead Canterbury playwright. Um, that's just my Tuesday night. Um, um, one of my books is called 1593, and randomly, I, and it's a crown of sonnets. There are 29 sonnets, one for every year of Marlowe's alleged life, and they all link. So the last line of sonnet one is the first line of sonnet two, and so forth. And it tells a story, and it's very cheap, and you should buy and review it. Um, but... I, I thought, I need to get Marlowe to Italy. Where shall I put him? And I just thought, Ravenna. Yeah, it sounds nice. Is that, is that, did I? I think that's right. Yeah, I'm hoping I've got that right. Um, you wrote it. I don't know. I, I, exactly. I mean, how embarrassing. I've gone and forgotten. I think it was Ravenna. Yeah, sounds about right. Anyway, um, well, at the time, apparently, this was a part of Italy that was free from um, papal control. In other words, it, it was relatively free from papal control because Italy wasn't unified and, and so on. So it was a kind of a city-state where if you were... Uh, let's say, uh, a foreign person, if you were uh, a Protestant, you could just about get under the radar and survive. So um, th 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 this was certainly my theory, and I was basing it on, on Hoffman's own theory, which is um, that Marlowe survives Deptford, uh, leaves uh, England at Dover, and, and, and makes it to uh, Italy. Uh, and this would certainly link with uh, what... Um, Hoffman calls um, Shakespeare's startling knowledge of Italy's geography. Remember, we've got no evidence whatsoever that Shakespeare of Stratford left the country. Um, but whoever wrote the, uh, the, the, the works of Shakespeare had a, a thoroughgoing 
study, um, intimate, intimate knowledge of Italy. Uh, just really random things, such as in, in Romeo and Juliet, we're told that sycamores grow on the west side of the city. People assumed this was some kind of bizarre kind of local, uh, sorry, invented detail. But it turns out that to this day, um, if you go to Verona, uh, sycamores do grow on the west side of the city. So whoever wrote the play had been there. Um, it, it strikes me, though, this is the very almost Stratfordian way of saying we know a fact that the Shakespeare author knew a lot about Italy, therefore Marlowe must have gone to Italy, rather than saying Marlowe was in Italy, mm. this fits the fact that we know about Shakespeare. Yes, I mean, we cannot prove that Marlowe went to Italy, of course. <coughs> we can merely point to the fact that he had a very dodgy death. Um, what, what would be interesting is if there were to be some kind of handwritten or eyewitness accounts in Italy... Um, from the 1590s that talks about some kind of you know, local English gentleman called, you know, I don't know, Signor Maloe, who may or may not have been sending things back to England. But th there is some evidence that that was going on. And this is to do with, uh, this is something Hoffman picks up uh, in, in his book, The Murder of the Man Who Was Shakespeare, and it relates to Thomas Walsingham's last will and testament. So... Imagine, if you will, just for, for the sake of argument, Marlowe makes it to Italy. He then goes on to... Uh, by the way, in 1593, when he dies, that's the first year Shakespeare's name appears in print on Venus and Adonis, 1593. Interesting dovetailing. Um, so let's say he's out there writing, um, you know, Titus Andronicus, Two Gentlemen of Verona, Merchant of Venice, Romeo and Juliet, all the Italian plays. Um, how does he get them back to England? Well... What Hoffman discovered is that when Thomas Walsingham uh, left his last will and testament, uh, this was the 11th of August, 1630, there is a curious mention in the will and a sum of money left. And the reference is this, to Thomas Smith, Scrivener, 40 shillings for a ring. Now, 40 shillings is a lot of money for a man like a Scrivener, uh, who's basically a human photocopier, He's a factotum, he copies documents out, he's paid to kind of write and you know, produce documents for, uh, for his employer. But as Hoffman notes, it was unusual for an aristocrat to mention a tradesman in his will. And a will is a very private thing, so I think Hoffman, uh, sorry, um, Walsingham would have known that this theoretically wouldn't leak out. So Scriveners copy out documents by hand, and Walsingham's left 40 shillings to a Scrivener in his will, and Hoffman's conclusion is, and I quote, I believe that it was Smith who copied the Marlowe documents for Walsingham to distribute to the London theatres. And then Shakespeare's just the convenient frontman for that operation. So that's what Hoffman says. It's a, it's a nice idea. We've got very little by way of actual evidence for it, which is always the issue, I think, with these. I mean, it would, it makes sense from a certain perspective. There are a number of very contemporary references in Shakespeare's plays that... Mm. Don't add up if you, whichever way you believe. If you believe it was De Vere, you believe it was Marlowe, mm. and it's so it's plausible that someone like Smith was adding in these contemporary references for the stage. They were clearly rewritten by someone. Um, but uh, that said, it's certainly an intriguing theory. Yeah, and, and, and then we're not we're not going to do uh, De Vere in any detail today, obviously. But um, there's great evidence pointing towards De Vere. Um, and, and his familiarity with Italy. He was known as the Italian Earl. He spent about 18 months touring Italy and the continent. Um, and we can attest that. It's, it's kind of on the historical record. We know where he was. He was sending letters home to England. So we don't know Marlowe was in Italy, and that's a relative weakness of the pro-Marlovian argument. But it's just 
interesting to think about. The mum was a spy, and I think that has to be borne in mind before you think about the AQ as it relates to Marlowe. Um, his, his lifestyle was, was determined by the fact that he had to be a very secretive person. I mean, remember, the group theory does allow for Marlowe and Devere to have worked together in some way, or Marlowe et al. Yeah, the, the group theory hinges on uh, the Earl of Oxford's scriptorium in London. So you've got Oxford as kind of the head of the operation and various other people feeding into the plays or the, the production of the plays that would bear the name Shakespeare. Um, uh, Alexander War posits that Marlowe probably worked for Oxford at the scriptorium. And that, that would, you know, kind of explain those um, Stratfordian scholars, by the way, who, who, who notice that um, late Marlowe sounds like early Shakespeare. Uh, for Hoffman, of course, it was Marlowe all the time. He simply went back and plagiarised his previous work. Um, but yeah, the group theory would allow for Marlowe to be involved, if not the, the actual sole guy. Yeah, and it certainly explains those discrepancies in his knowledge of Italy because he had someone who had been there who was overseeing him the entire time. Absolutely. I mean, if, if Marlowe had been in Italy, and we know De Vere had been, then it, it, it was very easy, obviously, to bring those two kind of minds together to, to kind, of, you know, kind of create local references that would be meaningful and, and, and add spice to the plays. The, the group theory is certainly something we'll come back to, and we'll do an entire episode on uh, the group theory and where, where its strengths and weaknesses lie. Um, but it's a fascinating one. And Marlowe, as I mean, I'm not a Marlovian, I'm an Oxfordian. Um, but my, despite that, I, I'm itching to prove either way, whether, mm. whichever happened, what happened to Marlowe, because that's a, a murder mystery in and of itself. My own research recently has been trying to find a potential link between Italy at the time and London, looking in shipping records and things. Nothing yet, but I'm still looking, so if you want to help, please do. Or uh, donate or crowdfund us, because we, we will go to Italy and we will do the research for you, so you don't have to. If you want to pay for us to go to Italy for a few mm. weeks in the summer, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll certainly accept any donations of that kind. Absolutely Just uh, right. get in touch. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll solve the uh, problem while we're out there. I shouldn't think that's a problem. Um, ju just uh, looking, looking ahead, uh, Professor Chris Carr, um, one of my... Uh, friends through the Marlowe Society. He's, I think, currently writing a book on Marlowe. So there could be more detail about all of these kind of Italian connections, as it were, uh, in the post. And um, I look forward to um, speaking to Mr. Sorry, Professor Carr in person because he, he did say he'd be willing to uh, join us on the podcast. So that could be quite interesting. We've had a number of people volunteering to join us. Unfortunately, so far, everyone who's volunteered to join us is an anti-Stratfordian. Mm. Um, and it would be great to hear from some Stratfordians. So come and, come mm. and debate us, cowards. I'm <laughs> calling you out right now. Come and speak to us. Um, and not, please don't come on, and, and I jokingly call you cowards. I don't mean it. He's walking um, it back. He's walking yeah, it back. Yeah, I'm immediately dialing it back so that <laughs> I don't get cancelled by Stratfordians, as if doing this podcast in the first place <laughs> wouldn't get me cancelled. You'll never work in Canterbury again. Uh, too late. You've, you've stuck with me now. <laughs> but, um, no, please do come on. But if you do want to come on and you do want to talk to us, come with an open mind. Don't just mm. come to tell us we're wrong or that yep. we're conspiracy theorists or that mm. we're mad mm -hmm. or that we're ignoring the evidence. We've talked about the evidence. We're continuing to talk about the evidence. That's mm. All, all of this podcast, if there is speculation, we'll call us out. We've already said that we're not convinced by the Marlowe theory. We've talked about some of the holes in the De Vere theory. Mm -hmm. It's not a. This isn't. This isn't a exact science. But studying history is all about questioning and finding the truth from what we do know. Mm -hmm. So rather than just accepting the established dogma, come and talk to us about it. 
and see if we can turn you around. Yeah, um, I remember in Elizabeth Winkler's book, uh, she, she found it very difficult to get interviews with Professor Wells, Professor Shapiro, and others. Um, that could just be they, they, they had a very full timetable. But um, yeah, I do think there's a reticence to debate and to have dialogue between our two communities. Um, it, it, it's very rare. Um, and, and what would be nice would be just a nice open conversation about facts and things. And, and speculation without it being, you know, at daggers drawn. And I think that's probably the future of the AQ. It could move out, spill out from academia, where it's very hostile, toxic environment sometimes, um, and become something that you talk about down the pub. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's genuinely a pub conversation. Though. It definitely is. It's full of conspiracies and fascinating mm. things and interesting stuff, exactly the kind of thing you talk about down the pub. Mm. And um, that, our only rule that we'll have for any, any guest we have on is that there are no ad hominem attacks. We will not attack the person. You play the ball, not the man, to Absolutely. use the football metaphor. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we, we will never, ever brook anything of that kind. And if you do come on and try to do that, then we will politely ask you to leave um, sure. before I just cut off the Zoom call and then you don't have a choice. <laughs> so, yeah, there is. Um, we, we will talk with anyone about anything to do with the AQ, mm. but we are talking about the AQ and not about ourselves, our own mm. academic um, qualifications or lack thereof, mm. um, or our own... Um, beliefs or anything along those lines okay so if you do want to get in touch please do uh, i'm on twitter at god of chicken some of you have found me on there already don't ask about the username it's been with me since i was 12 um but it's just a thing now uh, please do email us much ado about the aq at gmail.com the email address and my twitter handle are both in the description for the podcast please do leave us reviews on itunes spotify or wherever you happen to be listening and please do spread the word. We'd love to get more people into the discussion, into the debate. We want to... What we're doing here, with, this isn't the, the dry academic flavour of uh, AQ podcast that um, already exists. And if you want to learn more about these things and you really want to go into the academic side, that's what they're there for. We're here to intrigue people, to give you something new and different. So please do get in touch. And if we've in any way inspired you to start investigating, let us know because... We'd rather hear that than a thousand people who are already investigating say, oh yeah, your podcast was really good, I didn't learn anything from it, <laughs> because that's not the point. The point is we want to get new people onto the authorship question, and we want to interest people and, and start a new thing. And with my teacher's hat on, younger people. Yeah, definitely. Because they're, they're, they're genuinely keen on this, and, and so we'll keep feeding in book recommendations and whatnot, but if, if you're kind of under 30... Uh, tuning into this and you think hang on a minute my English teacher's been lying to me for the last five years yes they have yeah. and you should get into the AQ and do some research of your own reclaim it from the, uh, the, the dons of academia and if you challenge your English teacher and they give you a detention or whatever let us know we'd love to hear more stories like that because mm. that kind of that's exactly the kind of thing we're fighting against is these people who are just will just shut you down without any concept of debate um, we, we're not well, I'm not at least an escape the matrix conspiracy theorist lunatic. Um, I, I can't speak for Christian over there, <laughs> but um, I, I certainly will, will only investigate something like this if I think it has academic merit, and mm. the AQ certainly does. So um, I, c I concur heartily. Yes. With that yes. all said, have a fantastic rest of your day. Please do tune in next time. Leave us a review, etc. Anon and farewell. Fairly well.